Hi there, this is Jim. And Ralph. And we welcome you to um, Psychology Takeaway, where we attempt to look at some of the current affairs in psychology and uh, try to make some sense out of them. And Ralph, do you remember a while ago we were talking about, uh, or speculating about some of the potential uh, fallout from uh, COVID-19? Now there's a study that uh, has come out fairly recently that articulates some of that. Yeah, it, uh, it's kind of an interesting study because it says some things that were a little bit surprising to me and some things that I had kind of thought might be the case, but I wasn't sure. So the study validated some things and surprised me in other ways. Okay. Now, the study was uh, done on the East Coast and West Coast. Well, I say done there. They analyzed data from all over the country. But um, the people at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford and the Graduate School of Education at Harvard collaborated on this particular study. And they looked at um, achievement scores uh, pre- and post-pandemic. And do you remember what they found, Ralph? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. They found that... uh a number of students, a fairly high number of students, uh, at the third grade level uh, had declined in math and reading. Uh, and by and large, they found that that was um, associated with uh, the income level of their parents, i.e. the higher level that your parents were in income, the more likely you were to have maintained good scores in uh, math and reading. And conversely, um, parents who were in the lower socioeconomic uh, uh, ladder status had children who uh, didn't maintain. And this translates uh, to... uh, both black and brown communities. Yeah, and the other thing is that this also carried through into the higher grades where where the same uh, situation seemed to apply. Now, one of the interesting uh, things to me was that that was somewhat influenced by decisions that the school boards made when uh, they got federal funds to help them deal with educational uh, issues through COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of money went to school districts throughout the United States, and they were given pretty much discretionary uh, ability to um, uh, manage that money any way that they uh, uh, saw fit. You know, there was no model this, you know, shutting down schools and, and trying to uh, educate kids from uh, a distance. And so various school districts chose different kinds of approaches. One of the approaches uh, was to basically give every kid in, in a particular school system uh, a laptop computer, a Chromebook, and basically say, Go and do distance ed. Yeah. The problem here is that the kids didn't know how to do distance ed. They know how to use Chromebooks <laughs> to play games, but uh, and the teachers were not trained in how to teach 
uh, on online. And it just is not part, or up to the, this point, has not been really part of the curriculum of a lot of uh, uh, schools of education. And it's kind of interesting now, Ralph. Um, the uh, in my profession, uh, psychology uh, and and therapy, <laughs> using a uh, the internet is something that wasn't taught in most programs either. And so the uh, uh, therapists who were doing therapy at a distance were at a disadvantage right from the beginning as well. Yeah, one of the things, Jim, that you have uh, talked to me about uh, is that there are now, after two years, there are now several what I think of as fairly good models for therapists to work with clients uh, using programs like DocSeeMe and so on that allow pretty good interconnectivity between uh, therapist and client and uh, seem at least uh, experientially to uh, to be effective. Yeah, and uh, I think that is kind of... Uh, indicative of where the kids were, um, in particular. That's the group that I spend most of my time with, and they were used to interacting um, with computers and seeing uh, some kind of uh, um, stimulus on the other end of their screen. And the fact that it was me didn't seem to bother them very much. They seemed to know how to how to uh, interact and, and handle it you know, as we uh, went through our, our business. Um, Teachers, on the other hand, were a little bit uh, hesitant to use all of the capabilities of the uh, of the net. Uh, and finally, we had um, educational publishing companies beginning to come out with interactive uh, programs that teachers could fairly easily adapt you know, for their own classroom. But that took. That took several months, maybe a year and a half at the at the max for that to happen, and uh, people were beginning to worry as to how the that was going to affect the learning of kids. And uh, yeah, guess what? Uh, for the most part, kids declined in their um, uh, academic scores. You know, the, the milestones that are are me- measured. Uh, either at the state level or sometimes at the national level. And as you pointed out, the decline was, was greatest in uh, impoverished areas. Um, but it was also uh, not great in uh, uh, affluent school districts because of difficulties in, uh, in instruction. You know, teachers just didn't know how to, how to, really how to do it. And they said... Uh, Here's your Chromebook. Uh, here's here's the work, and uh, you know I'll see you at the end of the yeah. week. Yeah, and uh, the uh, the teachers who were perhaps coping better did things like say to students, "You have to check in with me once a day, and if you're having problems, ask me, or uh, ask your mom or dad." Uh, if they can help you and, you know, get get some extra help or get me to try and co- coach you a bit. And one of the things that uh, obviously I think 
uh, went along with uh, the poverty level or the lower income levels is people there often don't have uh, high levels of education themselves, and they often uh, have to work uh, strange work schedules or work uh, two or sometimes even three jobs to keep body and soul together. And so there was a time crunch and an educational crunch on the part of the people who were nearest the students. Yeah. And so the the school districts that seem to have done uh, the best job of either maintaining or actually teaching uh, the children at a distance were uh, school districts that spent their money on tutors so that kids would have individual tutors available to them to help with any kind of, of problems that might come up. Now, you told me a story this morning, Ralph, of a uh, the, um, mom who lives across the street from you who has a bachelor's degree, probably a master's degree, and her, her specialty, I think you said, was finance or economics, and uh, she you know, could be in a good position to be able to uh, help her uh, school-aged children. But what happened? Well, one of the things that she said one day was that uh, the way the students were doing uh, mathematics, particularly, uh, they were using a technique which she had never been taught, and she was trying to teach them uh, to do, I think it was, uh, uh, the older girl was beginning uh, in division, and uh, she was trying to show them long division the way we old folks had learned it, uh, and they're doing it some new math way, which is quite different. Yeah, they're using set theory, and right, it is different. You come up with the uh, same answers, you know, uh, uh, 42 divided by 6 is still 7, but it's how you do it now that is the, uh, um, the, the kind of the, the stumbling block. And uh, so this friend of yours felt kind of helpless to help her kids, right? Well, she felt helpless in the sense that she said, I can't show you how uh, you are supposed to do this, but I can show you the right answer and how I got it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I think, as you point out, we we all get to the same place, but certainly that uncertainty of should I teach them my way, the way I know how to do it, or should I I try and master a whole new skill set so I can tutor my children? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's an issue. Yeah, and with the uh, uh, kids that I work with and the parents of those kids, that was an issue, and. Uh, uh, fortunately, there's some help on the on the internet, and I would send um, kids who are struggling to Khan Academy, K H A N. There are tons of courses at you know going right from uh, math readiness at the kindergarten level to uh, uh, pre-calculus. In fact, they might even be calculus. Certainly, there's, there's algebra one, algebra two, geometry, trigonometry. I, I can't remember if calculus is there or not. But I'll put a link up to Khan Academy so that our uh, listeners can can, uh, go and take a look at what is available. It's all free, 
and uh, uh, there's some excellent uh, instructors uh, that are volunteering to uh, help kids with uh, their education, not just in math and science, but in uh, uh, languages and uh, and English and, uh, as well. So Khan Academy is one one helper. But I mentioned too that uh, the the Schools that used tutors um, seemed to do better than the schools that either had programs specific for students or just no programs. And you know, they, the teachers essentially said, "You know, you're kind of on your own, you know, student." Um, yeah. And th- something that that we could, uh, uh, I suppose, encourage your neighbor with is are, are the results of a study done a long time ago when the grass was green, you know, and there were unicorns. Um, and this was a study in, done in New Jersey. And uh, I learned about it when I was uh, in my doctoral program at Rutgers because the study itself was down, done just down the road from Rutgers at the uh, Murray Hill Research uh, Station for Bell Labs. Now, this has to do with um, uh, programmed learning. I don't know if you remember programmed learning, Ralph. I do very well, Jim. We, uh, when I was first involved in education, one of the uh, one of the things that was thought of as wonderfully innovative and new was programmed education, and we discovered that uh, it had limits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's based upon the uh, work of uh, B.F. Skinner and the idea of positive reinforcement. And uh, um, I didn't know at the time, but Bell Labs did a tremendous amount of training. You know, every time something new came to, into the into the workplace, all of the employees of the Bell Telephone Company uh, would be trained to handle this new thing, whatever the thing is. Maybe it's <laughs> how to how to manipulate a princess phone versus a, a, a rotary dial phone. I mean, that's you know that's primitive technology to people who are listening today, but that might be the level. And uh, so they would send out these these manuals, and uh, people would read through the manual and take a test, and you'd either pass or you wouldn't. You get certified and princess phones or you wouldn't um and then they they uh, found this this uh, programmed learning approach and uh, with it you re- would read something you'd make a response and your response would either be correct or not correct if it was correct you'd be told immediately oh that is correct you know congratulations ralph or jim <laughs> you could even you know personalize it if you made an incorrect response, then it would take you back through a, a remedial loop uh, until you, you know, made your correct response. That's kind of like we talked about last week when we were talking about the, the mom approach to um, uh, education, to getting her kids uh, through, uh, I think it was writing, and it's a way that you and... Yeah. Karen used to do it so that people could have multiple attempts to 
uh, master yeah. of material. Yeah, remember that? Okay. Unlimited, unpenalized rewrites uh, is really the way to effectively teach writing. There's, there's two problems with it from the perspective of the educator. Problem one is that it's very time-intensive, and right. as an educator, you have to be willing to remark assignments maybe as many as five or six times. But each time the student closes in further on what you're looking for as an ideal response. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. And uh, so with, with uh, programmed instruction, uh, this kind of shaping, as uh, Skinner would, uh, would call it, uh, was a, a possibility. So the, the direct instruction was a possibility, and then shaping responses was a possibility. And so Bell Labs took this on, and they th- thought they had the the best technology for training their people. And it, it, it worked. Uh, it worked until it didn't. And here's the story. Uh, there was a, a study that was being done on the effectiveness of programmed instruction, and uh, um, I was a psychologist in a, uh, a prison for uh, uh, young, young offenders, and uh, we were using a, 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 um, a programmed learning you know, approach as well. And uh, the, what happened at, at Bell Labs is that uh, you know, they would have a lot of people uh, doing... Uh, the, the learning, and they'd monitor to see how well they had attained the various goals. And uh, the machine itself would do that. The machine would, would keep track of how well a person did. And uh, uh, the, uh, the people were usually doing better with the machine than were a similar group that were uh, reading the manual and then doing a, a, a quiz. Okay, so, hey, programmed learning seems to, to work. But here was the interesting thing for me, and it kind of could apply to your uh, neighbor across the street, that they had a group of people that were um, going through some sort of a course, uh, and the machine broke, or the machines broke down. Now, why not... We're not talking about 21st century voting machines here. We're talking about, you know, machines that were uh, giving sentences and then and then uh, asking for a response and then evaluating the response. Um, so the, the the breakdown apparently was kind of random. They didn't know when the machine would would have a problem and that would have to be fixed. Uh, and so the I guess we'll call it the instructors, the people who were were running this particular uh, demonstration project, would frequently go in to the cubicles because that's where these learners were. They were in these little little cubicles, uh, which we now see all over the place. But back in the day, I think that they were pretty novel as they well. Were, yeah, they they were pretty new at that time. The idea of you know, you worked in what we now know as a cube farm uh, it is uh, was something brand new. Yeah, and so 
just like people working in cube farms now, they probably weren't real happy with the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have any research on that. But what would happen is that the people who are running the, the educational program would stick their heads into the cube, say, how's it going? Is your machine still, still you know, behaving itself? And if it wasn't, they would adjust the machine. If it was, they'd say, okay, I'll check with you later on. Um, they were not doing any kind of additional instruction. It wasn't that they were you know, coming in and saying, you know, okay, well, I'll show you how to use the princess phone or whatever the, the thing was. Uh, all they were doing was checking on the learner and encouraging the learner, I guess, in some way that, you know, hey, I'll, I'll be here for you. you know, and. Uh, mm-hmm. So they took a look at the results of the the uh, uh, student learning, and they were amazed that with this kind of non-specific but but uh, 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 human contact, um, and I, I'm making this up now. I can't remember what it was, but the the achievement was almost two or three times what would normally be expected from a uh, a study like this that is they they uh, had fewer errors they took and needed you know, less remediation they went through the, the program uh, uh, more quickly and uh, seemed to enjoy the process so for your neighbor across the street you know it might be that she doesn't have to have the skills to do um, uh, math set theory but all she has to do is say okay you can do it. I'm here for you. you know, are, are, are you okay? Just sort of non-specific yeah. Yeah. encouragement for the for the learners. And that, Jim, is uh, is one of the things that uh, we found when we first started using uh, educational uh, modules like we're talking about um, for uh, for the teaching of English. We found that. Uh, yeah, you could hand somebody uh, a textbook and they could go through the program the way the bell workers did, uh, but they didn't gain nearly as much out of it as they did if they went through it in a, individually but in a group where there was an instructor circulating mm-hmm. Interesting. now the instructor didn't often say uh oh no you uh you know do it this way it was just one of those things where uh from time to time as you went around you'd say uh how are you doing or, is this module making sense to you and so on and so forth and just being there was often enough to uh, to make for vastly different results. Okay, yeah. Now, another thing that we can conclude with is that a few weeks ago we were talking about um, education and we were talking about the, the, the woes of, uh, uh, of COVID. And I think you and I concluded that, you know, we're not necessarily – uh, teaching children for the the test that they're going to take at the end of the, the semester, you know, we're trying to teach them for life, and uh, we've got quite a few years for most of this cohort to, uh, if they did have a decline, 
uh, to you know, catch up. And uh, the, the um, home can really be a good place to foster that kind of, uh, of catching up. One of them, in this study, one of the uh, uh, respondents said that uh, uh, she took out her, her, uh, her favorite uh, books and started to read to her kids, you know, curtailed a little bit of the, uh, of the screen time, and uh, uh, they, uh, they, they thrived on this. So again, it's that personal touch, and it's um, uh, a parent who's focused enough and, and motivated enough to want to do something different with their kids. So I think some of these studies could actually empower uh, parents. You know, they, they are important, even though we in education have often said, and you know, I can remember my parents being told uh, to stay out of my education, that uh, the people at uh, Alec Muir School uh, yeah. knew, knew better yeah. than I. Better Leave than it to the professionals. We know what we're doing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You, well, you went to the same elementary school that I did, and uh, your parents were told the same thing, right? Right. And, um, you know, I I can well remember, Jim, uh, going, and this is going back to, I know it's the Jurassic and the dinosaurs were roaming the earth, but going back then and uh, going to kindergarten, and both of us went to kindergarten able to read. Mm-hmm. And the teacher we had at that time said, kindergarten kids don't read, can't read. Right. And so... Teacher. I loved her, but, uh, you know, that, that's what... The, and, and she told my parents to stop teaching me how to read. Well, it was kind of too late. Yeah, and... Uh, both of us, for, for that year, as far as the school was concerned couldn't read and Mm -hmm. i don't know about you but i would go home and read (laughs) age age appropriate uh, sort of sort of books i i wasn't any uh genius but um you know i hey i can read i'm gonna read and uh you know but that wasn't that that didn't fit the theory uh at the time so Right, but I was just the opposite. I just stopped reading, and and stopped reading until fifth grade. And we've told that story before, of uh, yeah. how we got through fifth grade, and then pretty much continued as a non-reader when I got to sixth grade. Now, I don't think it was until seventh grade that you gave me a a book. I don't know if it was Fahrenheit four one five or a book by James Blish, a sci- sci-fi book, and that flipped the switch and. Hey, I was able to, you know, hey, find something I wanted to read, and that's really funny because my mother was the head of the children's library in the Sioux, and she had this <laughs> kid who could read but didn't want to. Didn't uh, want to, yeah. Well, I think uh, we've, we've maybe given our our listeners some hope. Uh, yeah, the scores and the and the tests may end up not being real great for the next couple of years or so. But I think that uh, we're going to see the schools recovering and uh, able to uh, uh, 
teach our kids, uh, hopefully even better than they had you know, previously. Yeah. And, uh, I have not seen international results. I don't know if uh, they, if the schools in China or the schools in Japan or the schools in Canada did any different in terms of you know uh, showed any difference in terms of scores. I'm sure that information will come out. It'll be it'll be available one of these days. Yeah, um, my daughter tells me that uh, she thinks, and she's an educator in Canada, she thinks that uh, Canada did better than uh, the U.S., but uh, that's largely because I think uh, if you take in the province of Ontario, which is about as big as six or seven states, uh, they had a, uh, a provincial policy for education, which, while it wasn't great, they did shut down schools. Uh, at least they they had consistent uh, availability of educators. Okay, yeah, and that's another thing with uh, we here in the United States. Uh, we're facing it. We before COVID, we had a tremendous teacher shortage. You know, now, uh, after COVID, you know, the, the teacher shortage is really acute. And so it'll take us a while, I think, to get our educational army back on its feet. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, as parents, if you're, if you're going to lobby for something, uh, lobby for uh, maybe a little bit more... Uh, pay in the early years of teaching because uh, I think one of the things that uh, is true, it it doesn't appear to be uh, a very rewarding career. And I think a lot of people say, oh, no, not teaching for me. I'm I'm going into finance where I can make a lot of money. (laughs) Or I'm going to make, I'm going to design games. (laughs) Yeah. Or if they'll, or if they'll pay me to play games, I'll do that too. <laughs> well, our, our next uh, uh, series we're going to start um, next week. We were going to start it this week, but uh, this study came out uh, and was you know pretty well publicized. And so Ralph and I wanted to uh, wanted to put our two cents worth in. But we're going to start a, a, a series on how to change, how to change. How to, how to make a pos- positive changes in your life. If, if you have decided that uh, you don't want tomorrow to be you know, a repetition of today, uh, we can give you some ideas as to you know, how that you know, can come about. Right, Ralph? Right. And one of the things that I want to, uh, to emphasize as we look forward to this is it really doesn't matter whether you're a student, uh, a mom, a dad, um, whether you've got 20 years into a 30-year career or whether you're a grandma or grandpa, uh, change can happen at any stage of life. Okay. Well, on that optimistic uh, note, uh, this is Jim. And Ralph. Saying. Keep your stick on the ice. Because we're all in this. Together.